0: Amen. If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 2 is our passage. Many times on a Wednesday night, I try to give you some advanced warning when I'm going to pop a Christmas song on you, and it's not even Thanksgiving yet, but tonight I just went for it, and it fits with what we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 2. And I went in Lowe's this week, and I was greeted by a giant inflatable Santa Claus which means it is definitely open season on Christmas songs. So get ready for that for the next couple of weeks. Probably won't be the last one we do. Hebrews. Let's start off talking about Hebrews as a book, and then let's drill down on the context of Hebrews chapter 2, and then let's think specifically about our passage, Hebrews 2, verse 10 to 18. So Hebrews as a book. Hebrews as a book has two purposes, and they really go together. They tie together. Negatively, the book of Hebrews issues warnings, and these warnings are warnings to people who are following Jesus, and the warning is don't stop following Jesus. Bad things happen if you're going to turn away from Jesus, if you're going to deconstruct your faith, if you're going to commit apostasy. Do not stop following Jesus. There's also a positive encouragement in the book of Hebrews. And the positive encouragement is keep going. Don't stop. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Keep holding to the truth. Do not turn back from the things that you have believed about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not turn back from following Jesus as a disciple. Now here's the thing about Hebrews. I've been reminded of this as I've read through Hebrews this morning. I read, I think, chapter 2 through chapter 6 in the Bible reading for the week. Hebrews has an unbelievable amount of doctrine, deep, deep doctrine, deep theological truths. Maybe more than any other book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews goes back to the Old Testament and helps us put the pieces together in such a way that Jesus is at the center of the picture. So the book of Hebrews has a lot of deep things, a lot of theological things, a lot of hard-to-understand things. But the book of Hebrews wasn't written so that you and I could beat the Methodists at Bible Jeopardy. It's not written for the one time there's a category that says, how do you interpret the Old Testament in the light of Jesus? And you say, oh, I've read Hebrews. I have all the answers here. It's not written just so that we have Facts in our head. All of the deep doctrinal dives in the book of Hebrews aim towards discipleship. Aim towards people who will keep following after Jesus. And even when it's hard, they won't turn back from following Jesus. So we're going to talk about that throughout our time together tonight. And we'll sort of circle, circle back to that idea at the end. Sunday. Sunday we looked at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. And we talked on Sunday about the deity of Jesus. This verse, this passage emphasizing that Jesus is the Son of God. And we talked about what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? It means that He is God. And if you keep reading in chapter 1, you read a section of verses that make the point, seems obvious if Jesus is God, but they belabor the point, Jesus is greater than the angels. Over and over, quoting old the Old Testament, pulling Old Testament truths, Jesus is truly God and He is far superior. He's in a completely different league or category than the angels. And then you come to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 begins with a warning. This book is full of warnings. Look at the warning in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away. That's nautical language, boating language. It's the language of somebody who has been on a boat, they've made it to the shore, they've gotten out of the boat, but they didn't tie the boat up at the dock, and when they came back for the boat, it had simply drifted away. Just a slow, almost unnoticeable process of moving away from a place that you used to be. The same idea is described if you look at Hebrews 2 verse 3. It's described as neglecting such a great salvation. Neglecting such a great salvation. I don't know about you, but I think most people in the Bible Belt, where we live, so it's appropriate to think about the place in which we live, most people in the Bible Belt who grow up with some amount of church background, who end up not walking with the Lord, end up far from the Lord, end up doing things that don't honor the Lord, most of them drift away. Most of them. In fact, there's a Bible scholar named Kent Hughes. He's writing about the United States of America. Kent Hughes says that drifting is the besetting sin of our day. The besetting sin of our day. Years before Kent Hughes, C.S. Lewis, who we've talked about recently, said this. If you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? I think for every one person that you would find who said, I was argued out of my faith in a debate with an atheist or I simply woke up one day and decided I was done with Jesus. Or I just got tired of God and the rules and seemed like God wasn't coming through for me. So I just decided one day to shake my fist at the heavens and walk away from God entirely. For every one person who would say something like that, you would find a thousand who just drifted away. They never made the intentional decision to let their Bible collect dust. It just happened one day at a time. They never woke up one day and said, I will not teach these things to my children. But it happened over time. And like Psalm 78 says, they ended up hiding the things of God from their children. They didn't wake up on a Sunday morning and say, that's it, I'm done with Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm done with Sunday school. I've had enough of those people. I'll never set foot in that building again. They just missed a week here and a week there and another week here. And they drifted away. It's a great, great danger. I would even say to you as the Wednesday night A-team. It's a danger for you. As the holidays are coming around. We get busy. Maybe we started the year really good on our New Testament Bible reading plan. But now we're in October. We're behind. We haven't... Made the effort to catch up. Family's about to come into town as the holidays get close. You'll have work parties, this, and children's activities, that, and all sorts of stuff. And you're going to wake up, it's going to be 2023. Don't drift. Do not drift. The book of Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's the context moving into Hebrews chapter 2. Here's the big idea of our passage. Hebrews two ten to 18. The Son of God took on flesh and blood that He might save a people for His glory. The Son of God... We established that on Sunday, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 3, 4. Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God took on flesh and blood that He might save a people for His glory. So if your Bible's open, you can follow along as we read together. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Scripture says this, it was fitting that He... Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins Of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Father, tonight we're grateful for your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth in the book of Hebrews. Help us to see the truth about the Lord Jesus clearly. Father, there are things that we're going to talk about tonight that are beyond us. They're beyond our complete comprehension. They're beyond our ability to reason and to think. And so we pray that we would view your word tonight with the eyes of faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we sang a Christmas song. I don't know how many days it is till Christmas. I do know it's less than 20 days till Halloween. I don't know how you feel about Halloween, but I know how Americans feel about Halloween. Americans love Halloween. Americans spend on average in recent years $10 billion on Halloween. Candy, costumes, decorations, $10 billion. I don't know what Halloween is like in your neighborhood, but I know what it's like in my neighborhood. It's a traffic jam of cars and kids and people and humanity and I have a neighbor who used to invite the whole town over for hot dog cookout and he moved and Jake Wood bought his house and now Jake Wood is my neighbor and I said hey no more inviting the whole town over for hot dogs just because you live there you don't have to do that anymore there's just people everywhere kids everywhere and you know why kids love Halloween It's two reasons number one sugar sugar My kids came up early tonight. The first thing they did was not greet their father after not seeing him all day, but was walk into the office to the stash of candy in Crystal's desk, open the drawer, and fill their pockets with candy before they went to Iwana. Kids love candy, so they love Halloween. Kids also love dressing up. They love to pretend. They love to play make-believe. And children love to spend weeks thinking about, who do I want to be? for Halloween. What do I want to be for Halloween? Now, you're all sophisticated people, so in a few weeks when you hear a knock on your door and you go out and there's a bunch of short folks standing on your porch and they have an open bag and they say trick or treat and you look and it's the Hulk and a dinosaur and a cowgirl, you won't say to yourself, The Avengers are here, and dinosaurs are back. We've cloned down. You know these are children, and they're dressing up. They're pretending to be these characters or these animals or these heroes or whatever. You say, what does Halloween have to do with Hebrews 2? Well, it actually has a lot to do with Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 talks about the process of the Son of God taking on flesh and blood. And for a lot of the early years of the early church, moving from the New Testament into the first centuries, there was a group of people who promoted a teaching called docetism. Docetism. What is docetism? Docetism was a Christological heresy that said Jesus, the Son of God, only appeared to be human. only appeared to be human. Docetism, the name of it, comes from the Greek word "dokeo," which means to seem or to appear. And the people who promoted this teaching said this, we believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus was and is and will always be the Son of God. But we, for the life of us, cannot wrap our brains around how infinite God could become finite man. We just can't process that. And so the way that they untied that theological knot was docetism. They said, you know what? He probably really didn't become a man. It only seemed like he was a man. It only appeared like he was a man. This is completely anachronistic to say, but it would be like saying It's sort of like Jesus dressed up like a human for Halloween. He put on a human costume, and he spent a few years on earth pretending to be human, but really he wasn't human. Now, if docetism is too much in church history for you, and it's too much in the theological weeds, let's talk about DC Comics. This could be called Superman Christology. Okay? Superman. In the world of DC Comics... You understand, Superman is not a human. He's not from this earth. He's from another earth. He's from another race of humanoids. But he's not an earthling. He's not a human being. Everyone looks at him and he looks like a human being until he rips off the Clark Kent exterior and there's Superman flying around, stopping bullets, shooting things out of his eyes, doing all sorts of Superman stuff. And you realize, oh, he... He just looks like a human being. He just seems like he's one of us. He just appears to be one of us, but really he's not one of us. You had teachers in the early church who couldn't process the miracle of the incarnation, and what they came up with instead was this teaching of docetism. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the New Testament has very direct things to say about this teaching. If your Bible's open, you can turn to some of these passages. I'll put some of these passages up on the screen if you want to follow along. Think about what we read in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It sounds an awful lot like Hebrews 1, 1, 2, 3, and 4. Parallel passages. Then you jump down to verse 14, and John says this, the Word became flesh. Not He pretended to be human for a little while, but the Word actually became flesh. And He dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in the letter that he writes to the church in Colossae. Colossians 1 is very similar to Hebrews 1. The deity of Jesus is front and center. But look what Paul says in Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, flesh and blood. The fullness of deity dwelling bodily in a man, as a man. Other passages we could look at. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4 says this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Do you understand what John is saying? If there's a prophet who comes among you and says that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, that prophet is not from God. Don't listen to that prophet. It says the same thing. Second John. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh... Such a one is the deceiver, and you want to talk about inflammatory strong language, the antichrist. Look, you may think that this is doctrinal minutia. You may think that this is not that big of a deal. You may say, oh, this is stuff for pastors. This is stuff for seminary nerds. This is not stuff that I need to worry about. I just believe in Jesus, and I just kind of keep it at that. But John says... If you buy into the teaching, you buy into the lie that Jesus did not come into the flesh, you are aligning yourself with Antichrist. A lie about Jesus, a falsehood about Jesus, aligns you with the enemy. Hebrews chapter 2, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Hebrews 2 10 to 18 is speaking about the miracle of the incarnation. It's the miracle of the incarnation. C.S. Lewis says this is the central miracle to Christianity. And he's not trying to downplay what happened at the cross, he's just saying this is the central foundational miracle to what it means to call yourself a Christian. If you want to make sense of this miracle, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It's the story of creation. This is what you read in Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human beings, and only human beings, have been created in God's image. I tell you all the time that the greatest danger, the greatest threat, the greatest attack to the church today, doctrinally, comes in the form of anthropology. People being confused about what a human being is or is not. This verse is important for 10 years. Million reasons today in 2022, the idea that human beings are created in the image of God. Here's one reason that this verse is really important. When you turn to the New Testament and you look at a passage like Galatians 4.4, the Apostle Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, It's Hebrews 1, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. Jesus is the Son of God. In the fullness of time, God sent his Son born of a woman. Not like Superman who just crashed into the earth and then his parents adopted him and pretended like he was theirs. He was actually born of a woman. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. This is where the docetists have their heads sort of exploding and smoke coming out of their ears and they say, I can't process How is it that the Son of God could be born of a woman? I don't pretend to be able to answer all of the intricacy and the mystery in that. But I do understand that Genesis 1 says that human beings, male and female, were created in God's image. One of the reasons that happened was so that in the fullness of time... God Himself could come. The Father could send the Son to be born, not of a cow, not of a tree through the process of how trees grow. Those creatures, those created things, are not created in the image of God, but born of a woman. It's the miracle of the incarnation. This is the deepest water you'll ever swim in in the Bible. This is a mystery that you and I will never fully wrap our theological arms around, but we receive it by faith. God the Father sent God the Holy Spirit to a virgin, and the Spirit of God created life in the womb of that virgin. And in that moment, not just nine months later when a baby was born... In that moment, the Son of God was incarnate in human flesh. It's a great miracle. It's the greatest miracle. And it's a miracle that people attacked from the very beginning of church history because they couldn't just wrap their arms around it. Theologians today, look at this miracle. This is your million-dollar term for the night. They look at this miracle of the incarnation and they talk about the hypostatic union. Throw that out at lunch tomorrow. What did you do at church last night? Well, we sang Christmas songs and we talked about the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Okay, put your thinking caps on. I'm looking around the room. You're all human beings, best I can tell. You are one person. Each of you individually, one person. And each of you has a nature. You have a human nature. One person, one nature. You're a human being. One human person, one nature. This is the hypostatic union. Jesus, you have to be careful how we say it, you end up being a heretic. Jesus is one person and he has two natures is a divine nature, and he has a human nature. You say, well, what's that like? I have no clue what that's like. I've never done that. I'm just one person with one nature. But what theologians are talking about when they read the Bible and the hypostatic union say, Jesus, one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Now, your brain probably works my, like my brain, and you start to think, okay, one person, you squeeze two natures in there, do they like mix up? Like when you pour sugar into your tea, you start off with unsweet tea, you take sugar, you mix them together, then it's kind of like a new thing, it's sweet tea. So you've got a divine nature and a human nature and they kind of mix up and theologians say, no, 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 the two natures do not mix. They don't mix. So then your brain works like my brain and you start to say, so is it like multiple personality disorder? Like, he's constantly going back and forth, glitching back and forth. Like, I'm reading this story in the Gospels, that sounds like divine Jesus. Next story, he's hungry, so that's probably human Jesus. And we just sort of go back and forth, and he's making the bread, he wants some bread. He's divine. And theologians say, no, 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 no. You cannot separate the natures. You can't mix them so that you get a new thing. And you can't separate them out because there's only one person. And if your head is hurting, you're on the right track. Because this is what's happened throughout church history. People's heads started hurting, and they said, Well, forget it. I don't want to believe what the Bible says about this. It's too hard to understand. I don't want to think about it. They end up aligning themselves with Antichrist because they want to boil it down to something that a finite human being can make sense of. In the early church, from the earliest days continually had to say, no, 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 we don't believe that. No, 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 you're off. You're wrong. That's not right. That's not what we believe. No, if anyone comes, any prophet, and they say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that prophet is not from God. That prophet is of the Antichrist. And they constantly had to do this. Now, look, this was a long time ago. It's 2,000 years ago. There's no internet. There's no cell phones. There's no USPS or UPS. There's no trains, planes, or automobiles. This is a long time ago. And the church, in various places, had to come together and figure this stuff out. They were not making up new doctrine on the fly. They were constantly saying, not that, not that, not that, not that. And the way they did it in the ancient world was something called an ecumenical council, also known as a multi-church business meeting. Sound like fun? You've been to a church business meeting, just imagine a multi church business meeting. People from all over the place, they come together, they sit down, and they would put up different people and they'd say, Okay, you tell us what you think about Jesus. You tell us what you think about Jesus. And they say, That guy's talking about the Bible. I don't know what this guy's talking about. We don't agree with that. Officially, we don't agree with that. We're just going on the record. That's not right. And there was four of these councils in the earliest years of the church. At all of these councils, the one thing that they're wrestling with is who is Jesus and how are we supposed to think about him? Because we don't want to end up on team antichrist. We want to end up holding on to the truth about Jesus. We don't want to drift away. We don't want to neglect such a great salvation. So there was a council at Nicaea, 325, Constantinople, 381, Ephesus, 431, then the fourth one at Chalcedon, 451. And I'm just going to read to you something called, this is not Bible, okay? This is a fancy book, and it's got a little ribbon in it. This is not a Bible, This book has all sorts of things from church history, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to read to you the Chalcedonian definition, the Chalcedonian Creed. Okay, This is not Bible, but it's Christian people, Orthodox people, coming together saying, this is what we think the Bible in all of its fullness is actually saying about Jesus, and we're trying to set the guardrails right here. Here we go. Following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach The confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same, perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. The same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards His divinity. And the same consubstantial with us as regards His humanity, like us in all respects except for sin. Begotten, not born, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards His divinity. In the last days, the same for us, for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards His humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion Two natures, no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together in a single person, in a single subsistent being. He's not parted or divided into two persons, but is the one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, And as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself instructed us in the Creed of the Fathers, handed it down to us. Our statement of faith as a Southern Baptist church is rooted in what you would call Chalcedonian Christology, that statement of faith. It's the early church not making new stuff up, but simply saying, these prophets are wrong, these teachers are wrong. This is what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to hold fast to the truth about Jesus. Now, it's the central miracle, C.S. Lewis, it's the central miracle of Christianity, the incarnation. It's Christmas. It's what we celebrate at Christmas, it's what we sang about tonight. And by itself, the incarnation saves Christ. No one. No one. The fact that God became man without ceasing to be God, that He became a servant and didn't cling to His position or His status on the throne of the universe, but He came and He dwelt among us, that saves no one. That miracle, the miracle of the Incarnation, was preparation for a second miracle that's also talked about in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 10 to 18, speaks of the miracle of salvation. There is the miracle of the incarnation, and that miracle leads to the miracle of salvation. Now tonight, admittedly, we're about to move through this last section really quick. We've spent most of our time talking about the miracle of the incarnation. We're not going to ignore what Hebrews 2 has to say about salvation. We're just going to note that Hebrews 1, 2, 3, and 4, 5, 6, they tend to focus on who Jesus is. It's the miracle of the incarnation. And when you get to the later chapters in Hebrews, the end of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10, it begins to talk more directly about the miracle of salvation, what Jesus came to do. But I want you to see what our passage has to say about salvation. So, six truths, and we'll go through these quickly. Truth number one salvation came through suffering. Maybe you noticed the bookends when we read our passage earlier. Verse 10 talked about suffering, he made it the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And verse 18 says, Because he has suffered, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The Bible describes Jesus as a man of suffering, acquainted with grief. He experienced that throughout his life, and it culminated in his suffering on the cross. Salvation came through suffering. Number two, salvation was focused on a people. Microsoft Word tried to correct my grammar a thousand times this week on that. That's what I want to say. Salvation focused on a people, a group of people. The Bible talks about the Father giving the Son a people, those whom you gave me. Jesus in this passage talks about brothers, and he talks about children, and he talks about these groups or this group of people that he has come to save When you read the book of Hebrews, it's really clear. Jesus did not just come to make salvation possible, but he came to save his people in fullness. We'll talk about that later as we move through Hebrews. First, salvation came through suffering. Second, salvation focused on a people. Third, salvation destroyed the devil. Look at verse 14. The verb in verse 14 in the ESV is uh, that he came to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The verb is katergeo. It means to break the power of somebody. Satan's described as the one who has the power over sin and death. The power over unbelievers. And Jesus came to break that power. And in the end, he will fully destroy, break the power of devil and his angels. Number four, salvation delivered slaves. Slaves. The Exodus is the great Old Testament picture of this, when God brought slaves out to freedom. The Bible talks about this in verse 15, that we were in bondage, we were enslaved, enslaved to sin and enslaved to death. Controlled by forces that we cannot overcome on our own. Desperately needing Jesus to free us. Number five. This is the big one. Salvation required propitiation. Propitiation. That's the word in verse 17. I know it's a big word, but it's an important word and it's a word that you need to know. Propitiation. It's the work of the high priest. Propitiation. Propitiation means a sacrifice is offered so that the wrath of God is satisfied. It's not a sweeping of sin under the rug. It's not a winking at sin. It's not a, oh, that's no big deal. But it's fully and finally dealing with the consequences of sin. Jesus died as a sacrifice to satisfy the Father's wrath. 2 Corinthians describes this as Jesus becoming sin for us. Galatians 3 describes it as Jesus becoming a curse for us. And the book of Hebrews describes it in important terms saying, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. That's why Jesus had to be incarnate, God incarnate. As God, infinite God, He's able to take the punishment that our sin deserves. But as truly man, He's able to take our place. He's the great high priest. We'll talk about this on Sunday again. So number five, salvation required propitiation. Last, salvation results in sanctification, growth in holiness. That's verse 18 Jesus himself has suffered when he was tempted. That means he's able to help those who are being tempted. Whatever temptation you face in life, Jesus can help you be obedient. Because he's been tempted. And he's been obedient. So he knows how to be obedient and he can help his people to be obedient. Maybe you've heard the quote, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing see that play out throughout human history when you apply that principle to hebrews 2 you might end up saying all that needs to happen for you to drift away is that you just have to neglect the great salvation that god has provided that's hebrews 2 1 and verse 3 All that needs to happen for you to drift away is to neglect the salvation that has been worked and secured through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just say, you know, that's preacher stuff. That's church history stuff. What does that have to do with me today? Odessa, Texas 2022. I got bills to pay. I got kids at home. I got people who depend on me. Do I really need to know about hypostatic union? Do I really need to know about incarnation and the miracle of God? You need to know about all of it. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 2, and that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Don't stop following Jesus. Don't stop believing the gospel. Keep trusting. Keep following. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Here's what you need to do. Pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. The message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation?